Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's event at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Michael Krasny, formerly host of KQED's Forum and now presently in the digital world with a new podcast called Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. I'm pleased to be joined this afternoon by David Rothkopf to discuss his new book, which is called American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. David is founder and CEO of the Rothkopf Group, an international advisory firm specializing in transformational global trends. He's also the former editor of Foreign Policy Magazine and previously worked on international trade policy in the Clinton administration. In American Resistance, he chronicles the unprecedented role many in the government felt they were compelled to play during the Trump administration and the consequences they faced for their actions. He focuses on the experiences of Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman and his brother, Evgeny, Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch, Fiona Hill, and others who felt they needed to speak out publicly to protect our country. But we'll be talking about that, and I thought we would also talk about the elections since David has graciously said he would be pleased to do that, uh, and they're so close and still weighing upon us. And we're going to actually talk about the stories that he tells in American Resistance that reveal what's really at stake in our country, and I think the election has certainly highlighted and brought a good deal of that into focus. If you're watching along with us, please put your discussion in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them later on in the program. And David Rothkopf, pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I said I listened to your most recent podcast, which is also called, uh, same title of your book, uh, The Deep State. Maybe talk about that whole notion of the deep state also in the course of this conversation. But I thought we'd talk first about the election. And you had three guests on who really didn't believe the media and didn't believe the hype and didn't believe the narratives that were pretty much consistent with the idea that uh, inflation and lack of popularity of Joe Biden, as well as the numbers coming across the border, those kinds of things would certainly sink the Democrats. And that proved not to be the case. And I'm just wondering at this point, if we can maybe get at just how important the things were that were highlighted in your podcast as you see things. Dobbs' decision was certainly mentioned, uh, in other words, abortion, but also the concern about saving democracy and enhancing and preserving democracy. And maybe in another sense, something that a lot of people were not even aware of that much, this new generation uh, of the voting block, uh, as your guest, one of your guests described it, Generation Z and the role they played. You see things pretty much consistently along those lines in terms of our not being able to predict or what we were from what we were hearing from the pollsters and the media? Well, I think we were able to predict if you uh, chose to listen to reliable polls uh, and you, um, uh, you know, trusted the perspective of people who had some experience. The, the, the problem is that as you get closer and closer to a big national election, there are a welter of polls, some of them reliable, some not. People use rolling averages of the polls. Uh, and so when some of the polls are not reliable, they skew the averages. Of course, we have a country that's divided into uh, uh, competing media bubbles. And some of those bubbles deal in facts and some of them deal in opinion. And many of the people on those uh, uh, programs tend to 
you know, speak toward, you know, in, in favor of one view or another. Uh, and so they spin the narrative. Uh, and then, as you know, there, you know, there's a tendency among journalists to look for the, the, the story that everybody else is covering. You end up with kind of groupthink about what's the narrative. And you watched over the summer and in, in, in June and in the first couple of months after the Dobbs decision, everybody was struck by how that had mobilized voters in places like Kansas. Um, but as you drew closer to November, um, you know, there became another uh, kind of conventional wisdom that said the election is all about uh, the, the inflation rate uh, and the economy, and that assumed that if people were concerned about the economy, that meant they would vote for Republicans. Well, as it turned out, the Dobbs decision did drive a lot of people to the polls. Uh, it also helped engage these younger Gen Z voters. Uh, they were also, as a group, um, uh, extremely interested in the issue of protecting democracy. Uh, uh, election deniers were defeated in all but one of the gubernatorial races in which they ran, uh, and that one is unresolved as of right now in Arizona. Um, and, uh, you know, you found that uh, if, you, you know, you set aside the outlier polls, most of the polls showed that the Democrats were up a little bit or it was tied. And here we are after the election. Uh, and for all intents and purposes, uh, you know, the House and the Senate are tied. In the House, it looks slightly more likely than not that you're going to end up with a couple more Republican seats than Democrats. And in the Senate, it looks like you'll either end up with a 50-50 Senate or, as I think is slightly more likely, a uh, 51-49 Senate uh, on behalf of the Democrats. And, you know, that's a historic outcome. It's the best outcome for a president in a midterm election since John F. Kennedy. Uh, And it suggests that voters uh, did not follow the usual throw the bums out trend, but instead said there are some issues that are so important to us that we're going to show up in uh, high numbers, some case record numbers, uh, uh, because uh, you know we think our democracy is at stake, and it is. And uh, net net, the outcome while not optimal, because I think a Republican House of Representatives is going to be absolutely chaotic um, and obstructionist, uh, it's certainly a lot better than it could have been. It's also, I think, uh, axiomatic at this point that Republicans, even if they have a majority number, which seems plausible at this point, uh, they're going to have to deal with their own internal divisions. They're not necessarily going to be able to, as many of them have been saying, uh, bring uh, our president to what they see as a bars of justice, or for that matter, his son, Hunter. Uh, I mean, just remember John Boehner and Paul Ryan and all the divisions they had, particularly during the Tea Party years and even after that. Just wondering, though, if you see the election as also being, as many have said, a repudiation of the election, the last election, presidential election deniers, including, of course, most front and center President Trump himself. And uh, the idea that Trump himself has been repudiated. It's fascinating to me now to see the Wall Street Journal and Fox News and the New York Post, these Murdoch franchises or uh, Murdoch ownership, uh, 
sort of turning against Trump, saying, you know, he's a loser. Maybe uh, Ron DeSantis is the guy that we should be looking at as a nominee. How uh, how much from your perspective is that playing in the, not only in the election, but now playing in what we're going to see unfolding? Well, you know, it's a sad fact of American politics that, you know, kind of at 12.01 on Tuesday, election 2022 ended and election 2024 began. Um, and uh, this, uh, you know, Elysian between the two of them, um, uh, it was exacerbated by, you know, Trump saying, uh, wait till next week on November 15th, I'm going to make a big announcement. And everybody knew what the announcement was. Uh, Many in the Republican Party are kind of horrified by that because they're concerned that he will upstage a potentially important runoff in Georgia. Uh, And we know what happened the last time he did that. Um, it didn't turn out well for the Republicans. So there's some concern on that level. Um, as, as far as repudiating election deniers, certainly, uh, as I noted, election deniers who are running for governor were by and large repudiated. Plenty of election deniers got into the House and got into state legislatures. Uh, so to, to think that we're past the threat they pose to our system uh, would be a, a big mistake. Um, having said that, uh, I think. There, for for people who believe in the concept of uh, one person, one vote, and the rule of law in the United States, uh, there were some encouraging developments, notably uh, a kind of firewall that emerged uh, in states that are critical um, to the likely outcome of the next election, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, notably, uh, in which in, in all of those places, um, election deniers were denied uh, gubernatorial positions. They were denied uh, positions as attorneys general or as uh, secretaries of state. Uh, and so it's, and, and in the case of Pennsylvania, Democrats took control also of the legislature. So it, it, it looks less likely that they will be able to fiddle with those important states. Um, but having said that, between now and then a lot can happen. Uh, uh, and uh, the Supreme Court could uh, uh, play havoc with the way the rules are set by giving more power to legislatures uh, than currently exists, uh, uh, possibly giving them more power than even voters may have. Uh, and uh, uh, there are some election deniers <laughs> that 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 may uh, may cause problems in other states. So we we talk about the states a little bit since you've mentioned them. I mean, just I'd be eager to hear what you have to say about. For example, Arizona, where Kerry Lake is the biggest election denier, perhaps of all, and it's come down to the wire there. Uh, but- well, you know, I mean, we 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 can sort of watch that one closely. It has come down to the wire. I've seen some reports that suggest uh, uh, that uh, uh, Mark Kelly uh, is very likely to win the senatorial seat there, and also uh, uh, an even more extreme election denier, Mark Fincham. Uh, looks likely to lose in the uh, Secretary of State race. Carrie Lake gets not clear um, because she's she's running sort of ahead of the rest of the Republicans, and she may eke out um, a victory. And she would, of course, be a problem um, because she has been, you know, an inveterate election denier, um, uh, has attacked the press, has spread anti-Semitic tropes, as you know, she's she's. She's a piece of work. 
Um, and, you know, there are still states in the South where there are election deniers and in, in, in positions of power, whether it's um, uh, uh, Florida or, or you know, um, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Texas. Um, and so we've, we, you know, we've got to be, we've got to be on our guard there. You also mentioned Wisconsin, and uh, I was struck by how close that was, and kept thinking that Mandela uh, possibly lost that election because he was perceived as too soft on crime. In that state, it seemed to be a big issue. It seemed to carry Johnson forward. Well, you know, I mean, um, Mandela Barnes was not a great candidate. Um, the fact that he did as well as he did is a sign of what a lousy candidate Ron Johnson is. Um, out of touch, a rich guy who, you know, doesn't help the average person and who played a role that was supportive uh, in uh, regarding January 6th um, and, and, and Trump's position on that. Um, you know, crime is an issue that's on the minds of a lot of people. I think the right was quite um, deft in, in, in spinning this idea that um, police reform always meant defund the police. And I think some, some people on the left played into the hands of the right by using terminology like defund the police, which was stupid. Um, uh, I, you know, uh, police reform is, is probably needed everywhere, but some cases it will help combat crime and in no cases does it involve defunding the police. You want to uh, do a little tea leaf reading about what's going to happen December 6th in Georgia before we move on here? Um, well, I, I guess my first prediction, and by the way, I was absolutely convinced Hillary Clinton would be president in 2016, so take all of this with a grain of salt. But I, my first prediction is that um, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto and and uh, Mark Kelly will win, uh, and so I, I don't think Georgia will be the decisive state. Uh, secondly, I think that nonetheless there will be massive amount of focus on Georgia, and that can't be a good thing for Herschel Walker, who is exceptionally bad on his feet. Um, uh, and does not do well with scrutiny or hard questions. Uh, having the third-party candidate who had a couple percent out of there um, uh, will, you know, be an X factor in this. But Warnock finished ahead. Warnock is uh, uh, one, you know, in these circumstances before, uh, and I would uh, anticipate that he would win again against Walker, who's who's likely. But forgive me, David. That third-party candidate is. A libertarian, and they tend to be more, shall we say, inclined to vote Republican, regardless yeah. of who the candidate is. That's two percent. Typically, they do, but in this case, it's hard to determine whether people were voting Libertarian because they would have liked to vote Republican, but they couldn't stand to vote for Walker. And 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 so, people who can't stand to vote for Walker might just say, "I'm not showing up," or they might say, "I got to hold my nose and vote for Warnock." And so I don't know that I would translate that as you might normally do with a libertarian in another circumstance. He's also a gay candidate in addition to being libertarian. So that makes things uh, 
politically at least even more difficult to predict. But I appreciate your incisive attempt uh, along those lines. That's Chaz Oliver, by the way, who's running, who got 80,000 votes in Georgia. Um, let's let's talk about um, your book, uh, because, uh, and, and congratulations on the book, because it's an important book, particularly about, as, as far as I, my reading goes, citizenship and the importance of public service. And uh, I mean, you really seem to personally make a strong polemic, I mean that in the best sense of the word, uh, for those who serve the nation in its highest ideals. And the first thing I have to ask you, since we're talking about present news, is Alexander Vindman lost his lawsuit. I wonder what your thoughts are about that against Trump, executive, actually it was against Trump Jr. and uh, uh, also um, Giuliani. But did you feel disappointed, unhappy? What's your thoughts? I, I, I honestly don't have any feelings about it. I saw that he lost, but uh, you know the reason he lost was the judge said it was not actionable. Doesn't mean that he was treated well by these people. And I think the important thing is that Alexander Vindman is a man of character, public servant. Thought he did what he you know was the right thing to do, spoke truth to power, and ended up getting uh, fired for it. Lost his job, lost his career, lost his promotion. Um, and uh, continues to speak out and more power to him and the way that he was treated by Trump and Trump Jr. and others in the administration simply because he spoke the truth um, and did so in a non-political way. You know, the president withheld $191 million Congress had earmarked for Ukraine and it was illegal to withhold it. The reason he reported it was it's against the law. The Congress had already authorized the money. The president did not have authority to hold it up. Uh, and so he did the right thing and he got penalized for it. And that's the big, bigger story. And, and, and that's why he deserves uh, credit and frankly, appreciation from all of us. He also went through personal hell. Uh, but I'm wondering, I was struck when I thought about it and I, I certainly don't mean this in any, uh, it's a proving way of those beca who become American citizens. But these are all people who were born in other countries who became American citizens and adopted America and felt a love for America. Is that a coincidence that those who stood up for America were not native born? Well, first of all, it's, it's not true of all of them. Uh, you know, I interviewed 100 people in my book, and a lot of the people in my book are people whose uh, relatives arrived in this country many generations ago. Um, unless you're Talk about the main characters, though, of course. Oh, but you know, that, I mean, Fauci's relatives arrived generations before Kirsten Nielsen, Mark Esper, their main characters in the book. Uh, they, they're, you know, uh, uh, Olivia Troy or Elizabeth Newman or others who I, I spoke to in the book. Um, you know, they're, they're all different kinds of backgrounds. Of course, every American is an immigrant who's not indigenous. And, um, uh, people who come more recently are more appreciative often of the benefits of American citizenship. My father escaped the Holocaust, um, came to this country in 1939. By 1944, he was serving in the United States Army. Um, and every national holiday, there was a flag hanging beside our front door um, because he knew what it was like to live in a, a totalitarian state uh, where the state was hostile and a threat to its own people. And he was hugely grateful. Uh, my wife's parents are both immigrants and 
you know, she's probably the most deeply patriotic person I know. So, you know, I, I, you know, I don't, I'm not surprised. And, you know, if you read Alexander Vindman's book, Here Right Matters, um, he talks about that. He talks about coming as a, as a small child from Ukraine and, uh, and how he, as a consequence, has a special appreciation for the United States. But, you know, all public servants um, choose a job working for the U.S. government uh, or, you know, career public servants uh, when they could choose other jobs that would, um, you know, make a lot more money, possibly have a lot more uh, high profile. Uh, you know, bureaucrats in the U.S. government are not uh, glorified. And, you know, many, except for the people in the very top jobs, operate in some obscurity. Um, and yet, you know, here we have a government, the largest organization on the planet Earth, full of dedicated career public servants who sacrifice their entire lives working to serve the country and thereby other people. Um, and that's not something we should minimize. Uh, it's not something we should minimize because to have a successful society, you need that. Uh, and it's not something you should minimize because they form an important guardrail against people who uh, act uh, in a way that may not be consistent with the law or the Constitution because they take an oath to the Constitution. They're not loyal to an individual. They're, they're loyal to uh, the rule of law in our country. And the story of the book is the story of how um, time after time after time, confronted with a rogue president or people around him, who were either reckless or willing to violate the law, people stood up and said, no, we're not going to go there. And they found a way to stop things from being even worse than they were. And, you know, we have, we all have our own memories of the Trump administration, but when you think of COVID or immigration or national security or elections or how uh, the president dealt with uh, civil liberties uh, in our in our country, and you think of how bad they were. The, the the reason the book is particularly interesting is absent these people, it would have been much much worse. Well, you make the case. Uh, you even in your introduction talk about as a young man going to Washington and just seeing that kind of dedication and commitment and being really um, influenced by it. What do you say to the argument, though? This will take us into this whole notion of the deep state. But what do you say to this argument that we so often hear that? Washington is so overridden with not only bureaucracy, but bureaucrats, that these are people who just, you know, punch a time clock. They don't. In other words, it's almost antithetical to the position that you take that you've got, you know, some extraordinary people who give public service in ways that we should champion. We should be thankful for that behooves us to be thankful for. But the public perception, again, we how much do we blame that on the media of this just bureaucratic or how much of it is reality? Well, look, no no big organization um, is without its flaws and inefficiencies. Government bureaucracies are particularly notable for their inefficiencies, their unresponsiveness. Um, and nobody, none of us, nobody listening here, has, um, has not had experiences in which a bureaucracy, whether it's the Department of Motor Vehicles or the IRS or something else, has frustrated them. I get it. I'm not saying that everybody in the United States government is an angel or a, or a model of efficiency. What I'm saying is that particularly at, at, at higher levels, 
um, you need to have people who recognize that um, there is a higher purpose, that serving others is um, a, a virtue that is to be celebrated, and that uh, you know adhering to uh, the law um, and to regulations and 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 in, you know is a way of ensuring that our system works. You know, Congress can pass a law, but unless it's enforced, uh, we, we we have a problem. I, I you know I, I think you know I, I sometimes talk about. Uh, Reagan's big lie is the predicate for Trump's big lie. And Reagan's big lie was, you know, uh, that the government is the enemy. Uh, and, you know, for most of my adult life, there have been people po- for political reasons saying, uh, you know, Reagan would tell this joke, I'm here from the government, uh, you know, I'm here to help. And haha, that's very funny. But, you know, that's Washington's biggest lie. But, but, the, but, you know, if you're, uh, you know, and, and, if if you are dependent on social security or you're dependent on medicare um you're you're glad they're there from the government and they're here for to help if you want the borders protected then you want career military there to help you or you want the career intelligence officers to help you or you want career foreign service officers out there um to help you and frankly my own experience in washington which goes all the way back to when i was just out of college and i w- i was working for a congressman and and I, I'm embarrassed to say it, but it was it was it was 1979, 1980, the, the very end of the Carter administration. Um, but you know, most of the people I met in the government, whether they're Republicans or Democrats or Independents, were good people trying to do good things for the American people. And it's not a popular thing to say, um, but thank God for them. Well, of all those you profiled, I'm wondering, we have. And we like to think that we have in our educational system profiles of courage. I'll use that Kennedy title. Um, which individual would you think would be most instructive for our children and our not only our progeny, but maybe our grandchildren uh, to look to for the kind of paradigm that you're talking about, about public service, dedication, and also valor? Well, look, there, there, are, there are a lot of them. There are really too many to count. I, you know, I interviewed a hundred people for the book, and I wrote about dozens of others, uh, you know, who were referred to in those interviews, and 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 so, you know, there are many, many examples. Uh, I'm sort of approach this uh, in 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 a kind of roundabout way by saying, you know, there were some people I talk about in the book who ultimately did the right thing, for which we ought to be grateful, after doing the wrong thing serially. Bill Barr comes to mind. You know, he suppresses the Mueller report. He uh, turns the DOJ into the president's own personal law firm. That's bad. But when the president said, "Okay, let's uh, reject this election and run a coup, he stopped. And so, you know, there's some people where you say, "Okay, he did something good and he did some things bad. And we need to see that for what it is. And I think mature adults can can look at that and keep both ideas in their head at the same time. But there's some people who just time after time after time, you know, did the right thing, uh, not just followed the rules, but uh, had an ethical code. Um, And uh, when confronted with terrible ideas, um, uh, you know, they, they, they struggled to get the right thing done. And that could include highly famous people, you know, Dr. Fauci, I, I think falls into that category, despite the fact that he is hugely unpopular in in some circles and may have made some mistakes along the way. 
Alexander Vindman, Ambassador Marie Ivanovich, Fiona Hill, they all fall into that category. Uh, and you saw that, uh, you know, you saw in the January 6th hearings, a whole group of people who worked in the Department of Justice, um, you know, many of which, you know, you might not agree with on a lot of things, but who said, no, we're going to do the right thing by our own values. I think Liz Cheney, who I don't write about much in the book, although I mention her, I think she falls into that category. And I don't agree with her on on, on almost any political issue. Um, and then there are people you may not have heard of, or you may have seen them once or twice on TV. There's a woman named Olivia Troy, who, uh, you know, when she was a young woman, 9-11 happened, and she said, I want to serve my country. And next thing you know, she's off in Baghdad working in the uh, 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 office of Ambassador Bremer, you know, the U.S. Uh, 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 Coalition Provisional Authority Office in Baghdad. Uh, it's suffering, you know, in great risk there and then came back and worked with the security community, the intelligence community, started with the Department of Homeland Security, um, trying to set things right with things like uh, the Muslim ban, and then went over to the vice president's office on his national security staff and became his point person on the COVID task force, tried to set things right there. And, you know, there are a lot of more people like that who you never hear of who are genuine heroes um, who are essential to having a government um, that, you know, does not run amok, even when the man at the very top of it is inclined to do that. Yeah, and we need heroes. That's why I asked the question about, and and you answered it pretty amplified, uh, but those examples to our children and our next generation, we hope that notwithstanding climate change, there will be generations to come. Do you think Lynn Cheney have a political future? Liz Cheney? Um, Liz, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know if, when her party is going to come to its senses. Um, I think she must have felt uh, some sort of small degree of satisfaction watching uh, as some of the people celebrating the values she derided and stood up against uh, were defeated um, on, on Tuesday. Uh, I think it may be quite some time before the Republican Party comes around that way. But, you know, she found, a you know, when you talk about a political future, there are a lot of political futures. And she went to Michigan and stood next to a Democratic candidate, Alyssa Slotkin, former CIA um, uh, uh, employee, and said, no, this is the Democrat to vote for. And Alyssa Slotkin won. And I, she did that in a number of cases. That's a political future. That's super helpful. And she said she will run against the election deniers and the January 6th coup planners. Uh, that's a political future. Uh, that's extremely helpful. So I think that's that's the what the immediate future holds for her. And again, uh, you can disagree with her on every political stance she's got, but we ought to be thankful she's out there and willing to do that. Well, like I said, you make a strong and passionate case. Um, you may be bucking the tie because a lot of people think bureaucrats, bureaucrats, bureaucrats. And I'm just wondering, I mean, I want to look at that from bucking the tide in another way for just a moment, because it clearly, uh, at least to me, is a reader of your work that you have, shall we say, I, I don't want to use this word loosely, but you have a partisanship where Democrats are concerned. And that I, I don't think you make any bones about that. Um, and I read your piece in the Daily Beast and I thought that was a good piece. It was co-authored by you. It was about the Republicans versus the Democrats in terms of economics. 
And the myth, again, that's put out there, and I think it is a myth, and you prove it to be a myth, is that the, the Republicans are better at handling the economy. Uh, and you kind of detonate that whole thesis, and you do it through crunching numbers. And it was a convincing piece. I showed it to a couple of Republican friends, and their response was, this is the twilight zone. This is, you know, playing with numbers. and everything. In other words, there's that polarization again. The inability to even accept the idea that maybe there are really honest brokers and civil servants who want to serve their country in large numbers, not taking larger money, amounts of money, that there are ways that you can look at the economy that are not BS that show that the economy is handled better by Democrats. What do you what do you do when you're facing those kinds of oppositions? Um, stick to the facts and call out lies, you know, and, you know, I, you know, when your friends say that's the twilight zone, um, you know, I think the best response is, oh, well, what are the alternatives? What are the facts? What are your facts? You know, and what I did in this particular case was I, I, I said, look, if you look at history, there have been 14 presidents since World War II. Of the seven whose economies performed best, six were Democrats. Of the seven whose economies performed worst, six were Republicans. The average GDP growth under Democrats was over 4%. The average GDP growth under Republicans was in the twos. Every time, 10, 10 of the last 11 recessions started under Republicans. Every Republican president oversaw an expansion of the deficit um, and the national debt. Every Democratic president oversaw a contraction of the deficit and uh, under Clinton produced a surplus. Uh, job creation, much greater under Democrats. Uh, even in, in just under two years, Joe Biden's administration has produced um, uh, more jobs, over 10 million jobs, than the last three complete Republican administrations um, combined. Uh, record GDP growth, people being lifted out of poverty and so forth. Now, those are the facts. There, there aren't alternative facts on that. There, there's no, there's no, you know, I mean, you might say, well, GDP doesn't matter. The deficit doesn't matter. Uh, what does matter? Job creation? That doesn't matter. Quality of life? That doesn't matter. What, what is it that matters? And, you know, you might be a Republican and say, well, the stock market matters. The stock market does better under Democrats. Um, this, this is, you know, it's just, there's a myth and, you know, you gotta, you've got to go out there and you've got to say it for what it is and be willing to calmly and, 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 uh, convincingly lay out what's real. I mean, there's another myth that the Republicans are better at handling national security. Um, and I would say in the wake of the Trump administration or the Bush administration, um, uh, you know, that, you know, it's kind of hard, hard to buy into that one, isn't it? So, uh, stick to the facts. I'm a Democrat at this point, uh, not just because I've been one for my whole life, but because I think we're at a moment in which, uh, you know, we all need to be single issue voters. Democracy is at risk. One party is pro-democracy. One party is anti-democracy, pro-authoritarianism. Uh, and there's a massive amount of evidence that supports that. And I think, you know, if we're going to make a stand, we got to make it now. Uh, because if we carve voting rights away more, if we give people uh, with money more and more rights to influence elections, uh, less and less accountability, if we gerrymander um, more, if we give 
uh, legislators and, and, and at the state level more and more authority to contramand the will of the voters, um, et cetera, et cetera, you know, we'll, we'll be a democracy in name only. Uh, our children will not have the benefits that people have had in this country uh, uh, for the past 250 years, um, uh, acknowledging for a moment that people of color and women didn't have those rights for a long part of that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, I, I'm not ashamed to say I'm a Democrat right now. I'm proud of it. And frankly, I don't know how anybody who cares about the country can say anything else. And by the way, uh, I want to remind those of you who are listening, you can join us in the YouTube chat with any questions that you may have. We'll go to them shortly. I go since we're talking about Democrats. Um, you also hear the argument that uh, the squad and those on the, shall we say, far left, some people even say Bernie Sanders are hurting the Democratic Party or causing, let's say, too much of a rift or division or taking away from their bona fides. What do you say to that? Well, I say that's nonsense. I mean, there are people in both parties who are too extreme and have too extreme views. I don't think, uh, for, on the, for the most part, that Bernie Sanders or the squad are, are, fall into that category. And, I, and in fact, I think they've helped open the discussion to a number of things uh, that have evolved more towards the mainstream. And, you know, I, I call myself a 70 percenter. I think there's an agenda uh, that polls show two thirds or 70 percent or more of the American people um, uh, support. Uh, I think they support the idea of uh, fairer taxes so the rich pay their share. I think they support the idea of uh, better health care so that everybody has health care as a, a coverage as a right. I think they support the idea of uh, common sense uh, gun laws or women being able to uh, uh, have uh, control over their own bodies, reproductive rights. Uh, I think they, you know, for, you know, support the idea of, uh, um, you know, more racial equity of taking care of climate. Well, you know, some people would say if I laid all those out, that's a progressive agenda, but it's not. Poll after unbiased poll says that's the agenda of the majority of the American people right now. Uh, the Democrats, in order to win elections, need to embrace progressives and centrists because you need the most numbers. At the end of the day, it comes to arithmetic. Uh, and I think one of the things that Joe Biden has been able to do surprisingly well, I didn't expect it, but it, it turned out to be the case, was uh, provide some things uh, that respond to progressives, including the biggest amount of money allocated to fight climate change, uh, a relief on on some portions of student debt, um, uh, programs to help uh, people who are in dire need, particularly in the wake of COVID, some things that are more on the agenda of centrists, like investments in infrastructure, strong defense, masterful handling of the situation in Ukraine. Uh, and so what do you end up with there? You end up with uh, a balance and a lot of support and the kind of election result we've just seen. Joe Biden beat Donald Trump by four and a half percent in the popular vote. Uh, and he's just had the most successful midterm outcome since John F. Kennedy. Um, plus, you know, the, the economic performance we've been talking about. So, I, you know, I, I, I'm not ashamed of, of taking the position I take. And uh, I, I'm not ashamed to call myself a progressive because I think the views of progressives are now the views of the majority of Americans. 
And when you call your book American Resistance, are these, aren't these people who are just exercising their belief in the Constitution and the country, were they really resistors? Um, they were. And, and some of them, uh, uh, you know, objected to the term American resistance. Um, uh, and I, I talk about that a little bit in the book. I, I just did a podcast uh, yesterday. Uh, and we're doing a mini series of podcasts around the book uh, at uh, Deep State Radio, which is our podcast at the DSR Network. Um, and uh, I did it with Fiona Hill. And uh, Fiona talked a little bit about that, you know. But, you know, we, I, I used the title because um, they, they, they were just doing their jobs, yes. But at, at some point or another, they had to stop and speak truth to power to a rogue president of the United States. They had to resist pressure to do things that were, were wrong, whether it was launch an attack on Korea launch missiles against Mexico, shoot incoming immigrants, uh, put alligators in a moat along our southern border, ban people from this country because they were Muslim or people of color, uh, not provide uh, COVID assistance to blue states um, or hide uh, data about what was really happening with COVID or drop the 101st Airborne Division in to stop George Floyd related protests, you know, they stood up and they didn't let those things happen. We'd be a lot worse off if they didn't. Uh, and so I think de describing them as American resistance, um, as Americans who stood up to a dangerous force in our midst uh, uh, is, is, a, is a compliment. And uh, uh, although I respect the views of those who were slightly uncomfortable with it, they came around to accepting the, the description when I talk about it, as I just did. And all the things that you just mentioned, notwithstanding, uh, and it's quite a catalog. This is a rogue president who got 70 million votes, despite two impeachments, despite everything that you just so nicely enumerated for us. That gives you pause, it should. And I wonder what you say about that, uh, particularly in light of the fact that if it hadn't been for COVID, perhaps he would still be he might have been reelected, 70 million people. Well, look, I mean, we have a democratic system in the United States and, um, you know, there are losers and there are winners. And, and as you know, uh, Joe Biden got 4.5% uh, more votes than Donald Trump did and, uh, and, and won substantially in the Electoral College. Uh, Hillary Clinton got more votes than Donald Trump did. Um, but because the way our system works, uh, where we give disproportionate um, uh, a weight in the Electoral College to uh, some less populated states, uh, something we ought to change. It's antiquated, but we're not going to change. Um, uh, you, know, you know, we have to live with the consequences of that system. Having said that, those 70 million people who voted for Donald Trump uh, did not uh, uh, either intend or have the right to have Donald Trump uh, set aside the Constitution uh, or ignore the roles of the Congress or the courts um, or put American national interests at risk. Uh, and, you know, military officers are trained to say, yes, sir, uh, and uh, support the chain of command. 
But if the military officer gets an illegal order, it's their obligation to say, no, sir. Uh, and the same is true of people throughout the government who, if somebody says to them, do this thing, it's illegal, uh, they have an obligation to say, no, sir, or to go to a whistle, you know, you know, go through a whistleblower channel or go to an inspector general or go to the Congress or go to the press, because no matter how many votes you get to be president of the United States, the people are in charge in our system, and the Constitution takes precedence over the whims of any individual. I'm going to go to your questions, those of you who are with us. Uh, just quickly, though, David, if you would talk a bit about the notion of the deep state, because for a while it was used by the right, and it was used quite uh, recklessly, I think it's safe to say, by the right to suggest that there was some kind of conspiratorial operation going on. Yeah, it definitely was used by the right. I mean, it was a term that's been around a long time. It's, you know, there always have been rumors, you know, about little conspiracies behind governments since the dawn of time. The term deep state actually, you know, emerged from Turkey decades and decades and decades ago, but it became popular in the United States uh, around the time of the uh, 2016 campaign. The right seized upon it to uh, vilify uh, the government uh, and to suggest that there was an unelected government that was hijacking the country. Um, and, you know, you have to ask yourself, I mean, first of all, the U.S. government's the biggest um, organization in the world. And, you know, the idea that it's somehow there's some conspiracy within that um, is, uh, is, is, is a little implausible, particularly for anybody who's seen it in, in action. But but you have to ask yourself, why were they doing it? And, you know, the real reason for it is the same as the reason behind calling things fake news, even though you know they're the truth. What you're trying to do is you're trying to discredit a potential threat. Trump didn't want the truth run. Um, the far right doesn't want the truth run because the truth doesn't serve their interests. And the same is true with um, these people who take an oath to the Constitution and place it above um, uh, serving uh, a party or an individual, and they wanted to target them because they saw that they might be an obstacle. Uh, and that's evolved over time because these people really did uh, impede some of Trump's worst ideas. Uh, by the end of the administration, Trump was getting rid of people, putting in acting people who weren't, you know, put in uh, by uh, congressional or Senate confirmation. Um, and he imposed this thing called Schedule F, which was created to allow him to fire these people because, you know, they were they were screwing things up by saying, no, sir, the law doesn't allow that. And uh, now um, that although Biden reversed that idea, uh, now the mass you know across the leadership of the Republican Party want to go back to this Schedule F idea. And you have to see that for what it is. This is not bureaucracy. It's not some boring thing. It's getting rid of a guardrail in the same way that loading the Supreme Court with right-wing extremists is getting rid of a guardrail. And if you do it, and if you stop having people in departments in the U.S. government who say, no, you've got to follow the law, the Constitution, the will of the Congress, the will of the people, um, that's a step towards authoritarianism. And so we really need to look at these people, not just to appreciate them, not just to realize how bad things could have been under uh, Donald Trump, but also 
to recognize that if they weren't there, we would be in a very, very dire position. And that's the goal of um, the MAGA GOP. They want to get rid of the independence of these people and, uh, and turn the government into an organization that serves an individual or a party. You know, um, you've done a nice job of co-opting that uh, more right-wing attitude that comes across in that deep state. Uh, let me go to some questions here. The first one says, so listener, viewer says, I'm hopeful that even if the balance of power shifts in the House, there will still be enough Republicans who hear the American people and continue providing strong support to Ukraine. We must. How do you see it? Yeah, absolutely agree. Uh, the, the people of Ukraine are fighting to protect democracy. They're fighting against a country that is one of our most dangerous enemies. They are weakening that country. They are protecting our allies in Europe, and they deserve our support as they have gotten it um, from the Biden administration. Uh, the fact that uh, Kevin McCarthy, who might become the Speaker of the House, has said that there will be no more blank checks. Well, that sounds innocuous enough. Uh, goes along with the fact that um, there were scores of Republicans who've opposed aid to Ukraine in the past, and that now uh, recent polls have shown that it's about a 50-50 split within the Republican Party about providing more aid uh, to Ukraine. If we don't provide aid to Ukraine, if we allow Ukraine to um, uh, uh, fall, uh, further, uh, you know, to the Russians or to Russian pressure, or if we reward Vladimir Putin for his violation of international law and his war crimes, uh, then what we're going to end up with is a more dangerous world. And we've seen that every time Vladimir Putin gets away with this stuff, he does something worse the next time. And um, so it is profoundly and on many levels in the U.S. national interest to support Ukraine. And fortunately, I think, uh, there's a substantial majority in the United States Congress, even the new Congress, between Democrats uh, and Republicans who are, uh, you know, of sound mind on this, that uh, the, that aid to Ukraine will continue uh, as as intended, unless uh, McCarthy and others come up with procedural barriers for this, um, and uh, that would be an incredibly uh, dangerous uh, development. Wouldn't you concede that there are many, uh, uh, I'm thinking about people like Trump, who is, uh, if anything, uh, almost sycophantic to Putin. Uh, there are many others, though, especially in the media. Think of Tucker Carlson, who is unsympathetic where Ukraine is concerned, or more sympathetic, one could argue, to Putin and Russia uh, in terms of really helping and assisting Ukraine to the extent that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole number of people in the party who have taken this. And they're influential in the Republican Party. Yeah, no, and they've taken the position of Vladimir Putin. Tucker Carlson might as well work for Pravda, you know, he might as well work for uh, RTTV, Russian television. Uh, yeah. he, he spews Russian talking points left and right. Uh, and uh, uh, and there, there are a whole host of others within the party who have taken up this, this, this point of view. Uh, and uh, you know, I find it astonishing. You know, I found it astonishing when, you know, Donald Trump running for president in 2016 said, Russia, do you hear me? Russia, support me. And he embraced 
you know, Kislyak and Lavrov in his office and handed them secrets. And we all knew about it. And, and, and he gave Russia break after break and said, hey, while we're at it, let's dismantle NATO. Let's pull our troops out of Europe. Let's do all these things that are the high items on the Russian agenda. And the American people were like, oh, oh, okay. You know, I mean, th- this was our enemy. I grew up in, you know, in the United States in the 1960s when, you know, there were airway drills and we would go out, we would put our coats over our head because we were afraid of, you know, an attack by Soviet Union, by the Russians uh, back then. And, and, and you know, it was always a kind of a pillar of, of republicanism to take a strong stand um, against our enemies, to be for a strong U.S. national uh, defense, to take a strong stand for democracy and freedom. And they've just flipped the script on that one. They are supporting autocrats. They, are, uh, uh, t- they took democracy off the agenda of the State Department while they were in there. Um, uh, and uh, they've done things to aid and abet our enemies overseas. And I remember people laughing at Mitt Romney saying the greatest fear we have is Russia uh, or wondering about George W. Bush saying, I looked into Putin's soul and I saw, well, let me go to another question here. No, no, you're, uh, this is, somebody says, you've written that you don't think DeSantis will succeed on the national level. Why? Uh, a few reasons. First of all, Florida is not the United States. Secondly, DeSantis uh, has a terrible record on a number of things trying to suppress COVID data threatening and actually firing people uh, in the Florida uh, government who expressed views that didn't agree with his own uh, dealing with, uh, you know, self-dealing with friends and uh, allies in in, in the government on a variety of different kinds of uh, contracts, kicking the press out of public meetings uh, just because he just didn't want the criticism. Uh, He's also proven he's lousy at debate in the recent debates with uh, Charlie Crist, when he said, are you going to run for, are you going to stick around for your whole term of office? You know, it looked like he was presented with a advanced quantum physics equation that he couldn't quite get his brain around. His kind of eyes crossed. He didn't know how to respond to it. Um, he is charmless. Uh, he is thin-skinned. Um, uh, Donald Trump is going to spend uh, the better part of the next two years trying to destroy DeSantis. Um He's already threatened him and said, I have things about you. I know things about you that nobody knows. No, it's right. And he's, so he's going to do that. And by the way, I'll pay uh, for a ticket to watch that. But, um, you know, the, so the, the, the point is DeSantis is, you know, he's not a national candidate. And every, every, you know, election cycle, two years before the election, people will tell you with absolute certainty, you know, who the next candidate's going to be. And, you know, President Scott Walker and and, uh, uh, you know, a, a whole host of, of President Jeb Bush, um, you know, uh, you know, ha- our testimony to the fact that we don't know. President and, Marco Rubio. And That's President Leslie. Marco Rubio. Right. We, don't, we just get we get it wrong. Right. Yeah. So. Um, any predictions about 2024 and the presidential race? I think it'd be Trump. It could be Trump and Biden again, couldn't it? Could be. Don't don't think don't think it'll be Trump. I think Trump's going to have a bunch of legal troubles. Um, I think uh, Trump has got the party turning against him at the moment. Uh, I think the fact that 
you know, Trump has essentially presided over three losing efforts for the GOP is really the kiss of death. I don't think they care about it, election denying uh, or the coup or playing footsie with the Russians so much as uh, losing because, you know, it's all about power in Washington. And I don't think they think he'll advance that. Um, I think it's much more likely that you end up with some uh, sort of Trump light that, you know, isn't DeSantis, maybe Youngkin or, you know, some variation on the, you know, the Carrie Lakes of this world. Um, but uh, I, you know, I mean, we'll have to see what Biden says. Biden says he's planning to run. If he doesn't, um, then the Democrats have a pretty good bench. I think 2024 will be about democracy again, first and foremost. I think there will be massive numbers of legal battles around what it looks like uh, as an election. Um, uh, but I do think this, I think the economy is going to be in much better shape. I don't think that's going to be a central issue. Um, uh, I do think that America's position in the world uh, will be stronger. And uh, I think Russia will have suffered a real setback and Biden foreign policy will look pretty good. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, you've already established that I'm a, a, a Democrat and a progressive. So, you know, you may not give much credence to what I'm saying, but right now, I think uh, I think the, the prevailing winds uh, favor Democrats. Well, who are these Democrats on the bench, as you see it, who would be good presidential candidates? Well, I mean, first of all, I'm happy to talk about it, but I, I want to be absolutely clear. Um, you know, if Joe Biden runs, he deserves our support. Um, but in the future, you've got some good governors. You know, you saw some of them being elected the other day. Um, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania, Gavin Newsom in California, uh, and and others. Uh, and I think governors... Um, who have real executive experience make better uh, candidates uh, than uh, than uh, than senators, despite what senators may think. Um, and I think there's some young blood. Uh, I, you know, I also think you know the Democrats have this uh, demographic advantage. The country is changing, uh, and much of the direction it's changing uh, favors them. Uh, not just you know in terms of the racial mix of the United States. But in terms of the growing influence of Generation Z uh, and others who really prioritize issues like climate um, and uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that, you know, makes uh, their party uh, uh, affiliation um, much more naturally towards the Democrats. We're written uh, pretty close on time here, but uh, maybe one more question. Uh... Somebody wants to know if we could go, if you could go deeper. You've been prognosticating a good deal, and I appreciate your doing that. Uh, but the significance of the Kherson retreat, I mean, how do you see things unfolding now in Ukraine? Well, first of all, I think it's very significant. Getting Kherson back is, 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 is important to uh, denying Russia the gains that they made in the early part of this, this war. Uh, it, 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 opens up the possibility of moving into the Zaporizhia region, getting back some of the access, uh, the, 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 the access to the sea that is so important to the country uh, uh, economically and strategically, 
uh, it obviously puts uh, Crimea back in play as they move in that direction. Uh, Kirsten, you know, also puts you in the position of, of potentially being able to split the Russian forces in the north and the Russian forces in the south. Uh, and I think, you know, President Zelensky's done a masterful job in leading this effort. And he's been very clear that his position is uh, Russia should occupy uh, not one centimeter of, 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 of Ukraine as it existed in 2014. Uh, I'm not sure whether that's going to be the final outcome, but that's got to be the way he approaches it. And we deserve and, and he deserves our support uh, because ultimately the final decision on what borders are acceptable to the Ukrainians is up to the Ukrainians. There's a lot of fear, though, about Putin getting desperate, particularly as he uh, doesn't move in the way he wants to on the ground uh, or in the air. Do you think he's capable of using nuclear weapons? Look, Putin is capable of it. I just don't think he's going to do it. And I think he's not going to do it because he's had very clear messages from the United States and our allies, and I think also from the Chinese, to say that there would be a tragic uh, mistake, not just to the victims of it, but to the people of Russia, because what would happen immediately after that would be um, you know, a kind of isolation that no major country uh, has known in modern times, uh, uh, the United States would likely um, shift its position on some weapons programs to Ukraine, including providing Ukraine with missiles that could strike within uh, Russia. Uh, obviously, NATO's alert status would change. Uh, and there's no gain, you know, but Putin might launch a tactical nuke over the Black Sea. But at the end of the day, uh, if he launches a nuclear attack in Ukraine, uh, with the prevailing winds, he might be putting Russia uh, in 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 great jeopardy. And of That's course, exactly he, right. and if he does anything that threatens any part of NATO, Article Five says all of NATO will um, uh, you know move against him. And I think he has to understand that poor, small, relatively small, uh, relatively ill-equipped Ukraine has taken his vaunted army the second best army in the world and kick the crap out of them. And, you know, NATO, NATO, NATO is a whole different uh, kettle of fish and it would amount to the, the end of Putin's Russia. And I think he knows that. David Rothkopf, it's been a real pleasure. I, uh, I'm sorry we don't have more time, but let me again uh, instruct people to take advantage and avail themselves of your book. The book again is American Resistance, the Inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. And again, pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed the conversation. Likewise. And we also like to thank our audience for watching and participating live. And if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making programming, please visit commonwealth.org slash online. Thank you. And everybody, stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. 
Thank you for listening and for your support.